Welcome to Shots of Grace Radio, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. At Shots of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today, we're taking a break from our regular format to listen in on a Sunday sermon given by Pastor Steve at Redemption Hill Church. Now, get your Bible ready and follow along. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. If you don't, there is a QR code behind me. You can scan that from the back row, and yes, it will pull the text up for you. Pretty nifty, huh? All the old people are like, what in the world is going on? All the young people are like, finally. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, in what is probably the greatest day in human history, and humans don't even understand. They don't even realize it. Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a religious person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more shall we be saved by the life of his son? I don't think there's a more relevant verse anywhere in Scripture that describes the reality for every person who professes to know God. No greater verse that shows two things that happened during this week. The first is that people have the opportunity to be reconciled to God, and the second is they have the opportunity to have the life of God. Two things, you guys. Not understood by very many. Not now and not then. And so what I want to do is I want to take you in here and you online by the hand. And I want you to follow me as we go back to a hill three days ago. On a hill at 9 a.m., there was a man having his hands nailed to a cross. His feet were being placed and nailed to a cross. People were laughing at him. They were scoffing at him. All at 9 a.m. Nobody slept that night. There was an illegal trial that took place by a group of vindictive, hateful people that claimed to love and know God while they crucified the very Son of God. All before the sun came up, there was abandonment. There was betrayal with a pretense and a kiss, and everybody left him. There was a scourging that was so deep and so hard that no person could have lived from it. Ripping open the back and the body of the Son of God, all before the morning coffee and bagel. A righteous man was condemned in a cheap trial, and a criminal was let go. 
all before breakfast. It almost seems as if there was a different force behind what was moving this. It was unexplainable at the speed at which it was happening. All that we could say and we know for sure is something very unhuman was moving through humanity to get rid of this person, thinking that by doing so, all would be well. But by 9 a.m., one thing is for sure, the decision was irreversible. The nails were in the hands, the nails were in the feet, and for six hours, people gathered. They gathered to look. Some gathered to mock, some gathered to mourn. They wanted to look upon this person who claims and boasted of such miracles. Are the reports of him true? Is he really the author of life? Is he really God incarnate? And if he is, come down and save yourself. Prove to all of us that you are who you say you are. Because God surely cannot be pinned to a tree. So they said, but neither them nor us understood, neither then nor now, what Peter's declaration was in Acts 2.23, where Peter said that this Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified by lawless people. God planned it. God authored it. God called it joy. God said that it was something that was done for a greater joy that was set in front of him. But it was all according to his plan. Evil did not win. Hell did not win. The devil did not win. God determined it for a reason and for a purpose. And not one of them understood Perhaps maybe this is why Jesus stood back and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what's happening right now. As the day commenced, 12 o'clock drew near. And as 12 o'clock drew near, the nerves of everyone present began to escalate because in almost a cinematic picture, they saw clouds rolling in at an unprecedented pace. Something they'd never seen before. Clouds that were so thick and so dark that as soon as they rolled over the sun, so darkness fell on the entire land, over everyone. And as that took place and the wind began to roar, and they began to become fearful. They sat in that fear for three hours and they listened to a number of sayings spoken by this man whom they hated so much that they killed. Things like, Father, forgive him. Things like, I thirst. And then they heard the unimaginable. They heard him cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, God, why have you forsaken me? I'm all alone. These people don't love me. They put me here. I'm all by myself. And as he spoke those words, 
the Bible says these piercing words, he dismissed his spirit. And something happened when he took his last breath. We're told that a great earthquake coincided with a great darkness. You guys, so intense was this moment that just before he gave his life, one of the people on the cross next to him that mocked him surrendered his life to him. So intense was this moment that right after his death, one of the centurions hit the floor and said, surely this was the Son of God. Whatever it was on that hill that was so intense that made people feel, we did something horrible here. We did something wrong here. It was unprecedented. The darkness and the earthquake left an indelible mark, not only on everyone who was there, on history. It's interesting. There's an ancient historian named Thales. He wrote in 52 AD, before one of the Gospels was ever penned, he had access to no record of the Gospel, and we have his record, and here is what he said. On the whole world, a, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. The darkness, he said, appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Here's a non-believer needing to explain the reality of what took place on the hill. And he said, I don't know why it happened, but it was just an eclipse of the sun. Well, if you were on that hill that morning, you know exactly why it happened. You knew exactly what took place. The Son of God was murdered. He was murdered and he was innocent. And not one person on that hill not one person on that hill was guiltless. However intense that moment was, just a few hundred yards away, something else was sharing the stage with that hill. It was something that was as important because it was a message that God sent them and every generation since then and every person in this room and every person watching online. Because we're told that when Jesus hung and gave his last breath, simultaneously, there was a veil that was torn in the temple at the same time. And it wasn't by coincidence. What was this veil? The Bible tells us in Exodus 26, when they constructed the tabernacle, that there was two compartments in the inner part of the tabernacle. There was this holy place, and then there was the most holy place, or oftentimes called the holies of holies. And between the two, there was a curtain or a veil that separated the two. And on one side in the holy place, the priests could go and they could tend to the altar of incense and the light and the menorah, and they could tend to the table of showbread, each having a significance. But the, the veil was the point of demarcation. They could not go past that. It was God's way of saying, this is the line. Nobody is allowed past this, except one person once a year, the high priest, and he needs to bring with him the blood of the sacrifice. 
It's interesting, the veil. History tells us, it suggests to us the size of the veil, that it was 60 feet long. This room is 30 feet, so it would be twice as long as this. And it was 30 feet high. This ceiling is 22 feet high. So it was eight feet taller than this and 30 feet wider than this room. And they say that it was the thickness of the hand. Josephus, the historian, says it was the thickness of a hand, tapestry woven and woven together. So heavy was it that Josephus says you could take a rope and connect it to a horse and you couldn't pull it. 300 priests were need to move this. And God's point in it was clear. You may not go past this. And the one that does is the one that will die. You can't go any further. Man is forever separated from God because of this veil, or so we thought. What's the veil represent? Some people say, well, it represents sin. It's ever before us and God. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible tells you what the veil represents. Hebrews 10, verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, the veil that is his body. Folks, up until that day and time, the veil was an impassable barrier. You couldn't move it, and you weren't allowed to go past it. It was a sign to you you were separated from God. Completely. You weren't allowed to cross it and live. It represented, you could say, an obstacle that stood in the way of God and man being reconciled being one with each other again, having fellowship with each other again. How are you going to get through it? How are you going to get on the other side of it? That is what 2,500 years of people understood when they understood the God of Israel. He's unapproachable. You can't get to him. But then Hebrews 10.20 says he opened the curtain for you. He opened the curtain for you. You see, at the exact moment, you guys, that Jesus died and he breathed his last, the curtain separating us and God was torn. It's not an accident. The, the curtain, the veil represented the body of Christ. It needed to be torn. And when he died, God opened up the passage for you to come to him. God opened it. It is through the death of his son that we have access to God. It is through the death of his son that Romans says you have been reconciled to God. The death of Jesus. It is not the Garden of Gethsemane. That is not true. It is the blood 
of the living Son of God that was shed, and it is his death that tore the veil. And nothing less than that. And people need to know that. The cross is the focus. It's what God set before us. It's what God said, this is why Christ is the only way. This is it. This is the reason Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you are not going to get to God except through me because I'm the veil, and I'm the one that God opened up. I'm the one that God split open so you could come in. That is why Christianity is definite and definitive in saying there is no other way to God. You cannot get to God by being good. That would be tantamount to you trying to move a a 60-foot-wide curtain to get through to a God that would smoke you the minute that you did. Because why? Because the only passage is through the death of his son. You are reconciled to God. I am reconciled to God by the death of the Son. And there is no way you can get around that. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there at all. Because in Romans 5, he says, if you're reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more shall you be saved by the life of his Son? By the life of his son. You see, if Jesus simply died and then left you some instructions in a church or on a wall to tell you, okay, now that I died and you're reconciled to God, just do this and you can make it, then every one of us would be hosed. But he says you're saved by the life of his son. Luke 24, why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen just like he said. John chapter 11, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Oh, Martha, he'll raise again. Oh, I know he'll raise again in the resurrection. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, though he shall die, yet he shall live. And he that believes in me will never die. Oh, death, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Where is your steam grave? Where is your victory? John 3, 36. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son will not see life. The life of God is found in the Son of God. I will give to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. This is the testimony that God has given. Eternal life. And that life is in his son. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know you have life. You guys, the Christian is reconciled to God by the death of his son. But we are saved by a savior who's alive. He's not dead. And this one truth, I think, ought to impact every one of us in a very specific way. In John 19, 
in verse 38, they were taking Jesus' body down to be buried. And there's something that's said that we should pay attention to. Let me read it to you. After Jesus' death, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate what he might, that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body away. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh, and also sewed together, they took the body of Jesus down. Mark's gospel adds one thing about Joseph of Arimathea. It says he was a respectful member of the council. You got two men here. Don't miss this. And this is a side note. Our Pharisees, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, and, and Nicodemus, the guy who came to Jesus at night, afraid to out himself that he's asking the Messiah questions that the council wouldn't approve of. They were both a part of what was called the Sanhedrin Council. These were the religious Pharisees of the day, the educated. They were the ones that put Jesus to death illegally. So you've got two members of this council that are believers secretly. And let me say this. You have no idea what God's doing in any person's heart in any given moment. Did you know that? You have no idea. You look at them outwardly, and you would think, oh, Nicodemus, you know, you little coward going by night, you know. Why don't you ask him in the middle of the day, you coward? But both of them, God was doing some kind of work. It makes me wonder, what was going on on this council? Like, there's 70 members. Was there like a little revival going on? How many of those guys are we going to see when we get to heaven? The point is this. God was doing a work in the hearts of people secretly, and nobody knew it. And I would suggest to you, it's probably the same to you. God's doing a work in the hearts of some people around you, and you just have no idea. You can't read the human heart. You have no idea. You might look at the outward, and you might think, gosh, they're so far away. But you have no idea of the tears that they cry on their bed at night and the questions that they ask God as to why. We have no idea. And I'm telling you, that is something that is very prevalent in God's kingdom. God knows those who are his. God knows people that have been turned off. God knows people that have been hurt by people who have been hurt by church. God knows people that, who weren't strong in the faith and the wind came and blew them off course and God is bringing them back. God knows who the prodigals are. God knows all of them. We know nothing of the human heart. And God was working in two men when everybody else thought they were just religious zealots and they were against Christianity. These two men were secret believers and were told they were secret because of fear. I can understand that. I can understand that. I mean, you know what they would lose if they came forward? You know they would get kicked out of their livelihood? You know they would be spurned? You know that they would be looked upon as traitors in the Jewish community? Everything that they had been taught, all of their education in the greatest Jewish schools yanked out from underneath them, there would be a great cost. So I understand, I can get it, I'm human, that there was a fear as to why they didn't want to follow God. I understand why there's a fear of people inside of people today. Why they don't want to profess God? Why, don't they, why they don't want to come away from something they know isn't true? 
because they know what's attached to it. They know what the cost to it is. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope that you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If you've been encouraged in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace, it is our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.